On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, Bible geography expert Dr. Jack Beck is back at the table with the group. Some of what the Lord has had to say to us, he has said geographically. The Lord speaks to us in lots and lots of different ways. If you think about your Bible only as living in a thought world, you're missing it. Bible stories live in real places, and we miss something if we miss the place. And so pull your chair up to the table and be part of the group as we go on what Jack calls a walking tour of the Gospels. He's going to ask us to follow him down the route that Jesus took on his last trip from Galilee to Jerusalem on his way to the cross and the resurrection. And so how does geography enter into that journey and how can it enhance our understanding of it? Well, that's what we'll be discovering together with Jack Beck in this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. And this is Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And we're excited to have another chance to spend some time with our good friend, Bible geographer, Dr. Jack Beck. Jack was at the table with Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day in our last episode as well, uh, previewing for us some of the locations that they'll be visiting in the fourth season of the Holy Land video series. And I do have a reminder about a project that we'd like you to be part of related to that that I'll talk about later on in this episode. But this week, Jack is going to be doing the same thing he always does, and that's make the geography that we find on basically every page of the Bible more meaningful. Because as he's demonstrated so many times before, location always matters. And so let's get started on this walking tour of the Gospels and join the group as they welcome our friend, Dr. Jack Beck. Well, once again, it's our delight to welcome back Jack Beck, one of our favorite guests here on Discover the Word, a Bible geographer. (laughs) And uh, it's always fascinating having you along. And uh, we just want to welcome you again, right, guys? Yes, indeed. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation to return. I love being with you folks and I love being in the Word. So if we put a little geography in here, all the better. <laughs> just to just to kind of give a personal testimony as we start this series of conversations, thinking about geography is like putting a new lens in your glasses when you read scripture. You know, it's really been helpful to pay attention when geographical mm-hmm. issues come up and think, well, what's the significance? So you've added a new lens to my Bible reading, and I'm so grateful. Thank you for the encouragement. I love it. Uh, today, we're going to shift gears slightly, not so much in focus as in media, So uh, last week we had a chance to talk a little bit about the Holy Land uh, film series. This time we're going to talk about a book uh, that I uh, have finished uh, working on with Our Daily Bread Publishing. Uh, The name of that book is A Walking Tour of the Gospels. And it's not a full gospel commentary of the first four books of the New Testament, but uh, more of a shallow dive into the things that I happen to notice as someone who walks the land. And what is there about the place, the culture of the past, as you said, Elisa, that maybe is going to give us new insight uh, into familiar stories. So glad to have a chance to walk through the gospels a bit with you today. (laughs) Well, where do you plan on starting us off, Jack? Well, let me say the the whole week we're going to be near the end of Luke. 
Luke has something of a unique section. You know, as somebody with a PhD in Old Testament, I feel a little like I'm in the wrong swimming pool here. <laughs> but uh, the reality is what I know of the close of Luke is we have a series of stories that it, Luke seems to have collected together from Jesus' final walk to Jerusalem. And I'd like to yeah. dive into some of those mm. with you and talk about the place cultural uh, realities that I think come alongside the messaging. Yeah. That's good. I, I'm more of a New Testament guy, Jack, so maybe we can help each other out a little <laughs> bit. But uh, what you're describing is really the dominant feature of the Gospel of Luke. Each one of the four Gospels has kind of a dominant mm. feature as to what the writer was trying to accomplish, how they were trying to accomplish it, and how they were trying to accomplish it for their audience. Luke's primary feature actually begins in Luke 9.51, where it says, then he began to make his way to Jerusalem. Mm. And so from Luke 9.51 all the way up to the triumphal entry is sometimes referred to as Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. And that's where you're going to take us this week. Yeah, and through a little different routing by my take, I think Jesus typically would have traveled to Jerusalem uh, using the interior road. Some people call it the Ridge Route or the Patriarch's Highway, the the road system that went down through the center of the country uh, between Galilee and Jerusalem. This time he chooses to go farther east, down the Jordan River Valley, and uh, that actually is going to play a role, I think, in our first story, uh, which is going to be Luke 13 at the parable, Luke 13, 18 through 21. Short enough that I think we should put it out there for everyone. Sounds great. I'm happy to read that. Thanks, Daniel. So Luke 13, starting in verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. So there's kind of two parables in there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely so. And to circle back to the geography just briefly, oftentimes what Jesus is seeing as he's walking prompts uh, the initiation of a conversation. And this one is about kingdom, right? I mean, it's right out there. What is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of heaven like? And so why would that idea of kingdom service. I think it might have something to do with the route. Uh, As Jesus is walking down the Jordan River Valley, he's walking past a number of different regions with unique sorts of politics and unique leaders. Uh, He's walking past places like the Decapolis and Perea, uh, leaving Galilee, heading down towards Judea. And as he kind of goes through this evolving set of quote-unquote kingdoms, perhaps that is what prompts the idea. So, all right, we're walking past some kingdoms here. What's the kingdom of heaven like? And he quickly goes to two parables, as you said, Daniel. Do you notice the similarity between them? They both have something very tiny that creates Mm -hmm. something massive, all-encompassing. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard to miss that, right? Mm-hmm. The answer is brief and short, and we can do the theology uh, without the geography and the culture, perhaps. So let's see what added value there might be. How about the first one? Mm-hmm. What's the first element of geography or natural history, I guess, better, that you might see there? Well, the mustard seed, and it's always caught my attention. I'm a real visual person, and long ago when I first became a Christian, somebody gave me a mustard seed encapsulated in a plexiglass or whatever you call it, mm. sight kind of ball. And I, I've just held it in my memory for so long because it is teeny tiny seed. Yeah, and one of the things when you're planting seeds that you look at is 
the back of the seed packet will tell you which regions you should plant something <laughs> and where you shouldn't. And so there must be something related to the geography of why the mustard plant mm -hmm. can grow there. Yeah. Yeah. Calling all botanists. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the language of the Bible gives us a challenge in the fact that it doesn't have the scientific labels that, you know, botanists might put on some of these plants. And so we have to kind of look at, so what is there about this mustard seed that might allow us to cite it more closely to something that's in the natural world of Jesus? Well, there's a few characteristics here that I think. It's got to be local, right? Daniel points out it's got to be something that grows locally. It must have caught Jesus' eye as he's walking. Secondly, it had practical value. Uh, this is something that people are putting in a garden, and they're not going to plant a weed mm -hmm. in there. They want to plant something that has practical value. And the third thing that strikes me about it is it must have an incredibly small seed that generates a very, very large plant or tree in which birds can sit. So the answer is... I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what this is. There are, there, are, there are a couple of species of mustard along the route Jesus would have been walking. Um, one is called white mustard, which ironically has an incredibly bright yellow flower to it. I've never been able to figure that one out. That would fit the descriptor. Uh, mustard was grown to make the condiment. There's a second type of mustard, though, same family called black mustard, produces a little bit stronger condiment. I don't know how you do with mustard. I don't do particularly well with hot food. But uh, if you were of the ilk that wanted something that had a little bit more pop to it, you would grow black mustard. But to come back to your point, Elisa, the seed, about a millimeter mm. in length, mm -hmm. and producing a shrub, bush, or tree that's about six to eight foot tall. I picture Jesus walking along, perhaps past some urban gardens or garden areas, and here's one of these trees growing, mm. and Jesus says, kingdom of God is kind of like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You talked about how he might be passing other kingdoms, the Decapolis, or you know, these other yeah. monuments, palaces, whatever places, and what a contrast a mustard bush, <laughs> mustard tree would be. And that's counterintuitive as well. I mean, we can understand that some wonderful building came from brick by brick by brick, but it, that's hmm. man-made, you know, but to think about God growing his kingdom from a tiny, tiny seed into something sturdy that holds birds, that's a great contrast, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that psalm that talks about how lovely it is to dwell in God's dwelling place. Mm. And in that psalm, it refers to the birds in the temple. And mm. so like even the birds mm. have found sanctuary in this place where God is worshiped. And it kind of reminds me of that here, this kingdom of God picture that came out of this little tiny thing is a thing that became something that provided protection and a home for even the birds. So Jack, how do you draw a line to connect that with the parable of the yeast mm. that comes next? I mean, other than they start with something small and create something big, do you see any other connection in there yeah. geographically or? I think thematically, maybe, maybe okay. that would be the place that I would start. Thematically, I do. Um, I see uh, Jesus addressing a concern, right? We see him as this large figure because we have all the history and story. Imagine people meeting him for the first time. They're seeing the miracles. They're hearing the unique teachings. They're finding him to be something special. But, you know, there were a lot of Galilean teachers wandering around who were making big promises that evaporated into nothing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And for all the world, what Jesus was talking about was a pretty small first century enterprise. We're not talking 
talking about tens of yeah. thousands of adherents. And so I think the question is legitimate. Could something that starts this small actually become anything? So he doubles down, right? Yeah. I think to your point, Bill, we just talked about something small that becomes large and significant. Uh, is there something else in the culture? Well, how about we go to our bread? Uh, people ate bread every day. About yeah. a third of the ancient diet is composed of bread, and that means that you're going to have to make it on a daily basis. You know, one of the great living memories I have from my early years as a child on my grandparents' farm were the red yeast packets. Do you remember <laughs> these? Yeah. Yeah. Red yeah. Star or Fleischmann's yeast, something like that. And Jesus is talking about that same type of product, a product that you can mix in with the dough, creates carbon dioxide, the bubbles cause then the bakery to rise. I remember being on my grandparents' farm and watching that process, mystified by that mm -hmm. process, but watching that process occur. But we're back at the same sort of thing, not with the red packets, but with a little piece of fermented bread dough that mm -hmm. would be pitched into the larger batch of bread that was being baked. And the outcome, well, we have this very tiny amount of yeast producing this rather, rather significant outcome. I think, again, given the fact that people are involved in making bread on a daily basis, this is something that Jesus, again, is tapping into a very local experience. I'm yeah. way outside my depth on this, Jack, but <laughs> what you just described sounds a little bit to me like my limited understanding of how you make sourdough bread. Yeah. Because with sourdough bread, you have to have a starter mm -hmm. to begin with. Yeah, I can jump in there because I do that many weeks. And Good. to make two loaves of bread, I actually only start with 25 grams of starter that makes 125 grams that then goes wow. into the recipe. And that's wow. compared to 1,000 grams of new flour and seven to 800 grams of water. So you're talking about 1,800 grams of the non-fermented thing that's fermented by 25 grams of the starter. And this all sounds so mathematical, which is why I don't bake. <laughs> so picture a handful, Elisa, to half a bag of flour. <laughs> Thank How's you. that? Thank you. <laughs> so here we are. We're on the backside of these two parables, maybe something less frequent to our human experience, but very much a part of the outdoor experience and home life of people in Bible times. And Jesus is saying, when you do these things, when you see these things, think about the kingdom of God and don't be discouraged by the fact that what I'm talking about looks small and insignificant at the moment. Because mm -hmm. what's going to happen with that mustard seed, what's going to happen with that little bit of yeast is that we will grow and international kingdom with a reach that spans the globe. I know it, because I'm a product of it. Yeah, Jack Beck and the first leg of taking us on a walking tour of the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Luke, and taking note of some of the events and the teachings of Jesus as he made this final trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. And of course, since Jack is a Bible geographer, He's helping us to see the significance of location and place in what we're reading there in Luke's Gospel. Now, Jack also includes a lot of things under that heading of geography, like in that last segment, with vegetation and cultural factors. Now, in this next part of the conversation, he points us in the direction of a couple of other images that include wildlife and cultural perspectives that he also considers geography-related. And so let's listen. There were places Jesus chose to go, 
And there were places Mm -hmm. Jesus had to go. And what I'd like to do today is talk about the place that Jesus had to go, uh, Jerusalem. He says that with great clarity in Luke 13, 31 to 35. Let's join the word there. Sure, I can read that. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I think it answers a really important question. Why did Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? What is it that motivated, but better, what is it that motivated Jesus to go to Jerusalem? The Pharisees are going to suggest he should be motivated by one dimension of, of travel necessity, and we're going to hear Jesus counter with an alternative as to what it is that motivates this uh, necessary trip to Jerusalem. Yeah, they try to tell him that he needs to travel in order to escape, but he's actually traveling to put himself in even greater danger, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly which, so. Which is kind of surprising, right? Because the Pharisees, we always think of them as the bad guys, but perhaps this small group of Pharisees actually is caring for Jesus and wanting to protect him, which is, is interesting. very surprising, Daniel. Yeah. I, I agree. And we do know it's scattered throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts that there are some mm-hmm. who did come to believe in Jesus, and so they would have had, I guess, more concern than, than maybe the others. Yeah. I'm a little less confident of that view. No surprise, right? Uh, the contra- great contrarian from the geographical world shows up. You know, there's one of these passages that as a geographer, I just, I don't want to say I cringe at, because, but I think other people may cringe at it when they try to do the geography. It's that verse you read, Elisa, Luke 13, 31, leave this place and go somewhere else. Anywhere else, yeah. <laughs> so what, what, what is the this place and what is the somewhere else? Talk about local language where you really have yeah. to insert yourself into the story to make sense of it. So I think the place Jesus is at um, is in the district of Perea. He is moving south in the direction of Jerusalem along the Jordan River Valley, and that puts him in the Roman district of Perea, just east of the Jordan River. And the someplace else is Judea. Now, that's he's headed anyway. Um, But they say, you really need to get out of Galilee because of the risk that's imposed by the leader in Galilee, who happens to be the same king of Perea, that is King Herod. I love Jesus' response here because Mm -hmm. I think it has been less well understood. Jesus says, you go tell that fox, (laughs) I'll do what I want, essentially right? Mm-hmm. So he's comparing this Galilean Perean leader to a fox. So let's start here. What do you think of when you think of a fox? I think it's something crafty. Yeah. Wily yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Start picturing kids' stories like Aesop's fables or something yeah. like that and how the, the fox is the one that tricks someone into doing something. Yes, the trickster character. Yeah. Uh, and that really yeah. comes into the arena from the Greek world And I wonder whether or not 
that is what Jesus has in mind. First, because I'm considering his audience, and are they going to know those stories well enough to have created the picture you and I do from those stories? And secondly, if Jesus is characterizing Herod Antipas as a crafty guy, uh, it seems like a bit more of a compliment than Jesus is offering. Let me suggest an alternative view. Uh, The fox that may have come to mind for Jesus' original audience would have been this little red Palestinian fox, Palestinian red Hmm. fox. And when we think about travel stories in the Bible and think about the potential risks of travel, one of the things that will come up again and again, even into the New Testament era, is the risk of large predators. Uh, The Asian lion, the Syrian bear, the Iranian wolf, these were the top-tier predators that could take advantage of unwary travelers in the open country. I think that the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, you need to get out of our area here of Galilee and Perea and go to Judea because Herod is like one of those top-tier predators that is threatening Mm. you. And Jesus counters that Ah. with a different picture. Mm -hmm. You go tell that that fox, <laughs> the nuisance thing, the thing that, you know, knocks the unripened grapes off the vine. Not a threat to travelers in the ancient world. I think that may be how Jesus is pushing back, particularly if I've got it right, and we're talking here about motivation. What's motivating Jesus to go to Jerusalem? It's not because he's afraid of Herod Antipas and what he might do to him in Galilee or in Perea. He says, no, you're characterizing my move as a move to escape from Herod Antipas. I'm not worried about him. I don't want you to misunderstand it. Yeah, not to mention... Herod really isn't like, I mean, obviously he can do some damage, but he's not the most powerful, right? And who ends up executing Jesus isn't Herod. And so even in that way, it kind of plays into that where Herod is actually the less scary, even though he Mm -hmm. did some really evil things too. Yeah, Herod does pop up in the passion narrative at one Mm -hmm. point when Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee and he hears that Herod's in town apparently for the Passover, he sends Jesus to Herod. And there's a little interesting subnote there where when Herod's disappointed that Jesus doesn't put on a show for him, he sends him back. But then it says, and Herod and Pilate became friends that day because up to that point they had kind of been at odds with each other. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of window through the news station into the politics of that day, right? Uh, So we have a reality going on here that there's tension there. But I think the big idea is, you know, what is pushing Jesus towards Jerusalem? And the first picture from the natural world makes use of the Palestinian red fox. And the first picture is, look, I'm not leaving Galilee and Perea and going to Judea because I'm afraid, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then turn the page. Uh, And Jesus goes to another picture from the natural world. See it? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Let's lift it up. Yeah, verse uh, 34 and 35. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Mm. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah. 
this mother hen, you know, with her yes. with her little baby chicks, you know, gathered up under her wings. And I, I think of a, an illustration I heard one time in a National Geographic where a forest ranger was checking after the fire that had just ravaged his mm. region. And he came upon the charred body of a bird and he kicked it over with his foot and little chicks scurried out. And mm. the mother had provided her life for these little chicks. Mm. That's what comes to my mind. That's, that's Jesus Powerful. right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you point to verse 34, it paints a very different picture than verse 33. 33 makes it sound like he's going Jerusalem missionally because that's where prophets have to die, Mm -hmm. and he knows that's his destiny. But in verse 34, you get the heart behind Mm -hmm. the mission, whereas he's doing it to protect and to care and to love. And that's kind of hinted at, too, at the beginning of 32 where he's going to cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, Mm -hmm. too. So there's that care and that compassion that Jesus really has characterized all of Jesus's ministry. It's interesting to me that, that these two images of the Palestinian red fox and the hen gathering her chicken. They, they create mm-hmm. two very, very different pictures. Mm-hmm. And yet they seem to circulate around the same question. So what is it that's motivating this trip to Jerusalem? On the one hand, it isn't fear of Herod Antipas. He's not making the move to Judea because of fear. In fact, he knows, as you observe, Bill, I'm going to go there, and this is the place prophets go to die. <laughs> That's oh, why I'm going down there. But what makes me go there, uh, not fear of that, but love and care and concern for my people there. Jesus would carry the cross to save these very folks from their own worst selves. It's amazing, isn't it, the love that says, mm-hmm. I am going to love beyond your hate for me. For those of you who want to see me dead, okay, mm-hmm. I'll go to the cross. But I'm not going because I'm afraid of being somewhere else. I'm going because I'm so in love with all of you that I can't do anything else. Uh, he would carry a cross to save them from their own worst selves, and he carries his cross to save us from our own worst selves. Helpful perspectives from those images that Jesus likely saw in that trip that he had to make from Galilee to Jerusalem that Luke records in his gospel that give us both what didn't motivate Jesus to make that journey and also what did. Bible geographer Jack Beck at the table with Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day for the walking tour of the Gospels in this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. Now, in just a moment, Jack is going to have us look at a border story from the part of this journey Jesus and his disciples made as they passed along the border of Galilee and Samaria. It's a story that reveals how the socially displaced always have a place with Jesus. That's good news for each of us and should affect how we think about others as well. As Bill and Elisa and Daniel all said earlier, Jack is one of our favorite guests here on Discover the Word. But Jack Beck's influence as our Bible geography expert here at Our Daily Bread Ministries is not limited to just these conversations on Discover the Word. He also has written books, 
and been involved extensively in video productions with our film team. Now, currently, there are three seasons of The Holy Land with Jack Beck videos that are available on our Our Daily Bread Media Hub. Just go to odb.org media and search for those Holy Land videos. And right now, Jack and our film team are in preparation mode for one more trip over to the land to film a fourth and final season of this video series. And because of our connection with Jack, we thought that the Discover the Word audience would have an interest in helping fund this production. Now, as with everything, costs have risen dramatically, and the price tag on taking a crew and doing a production of this magnitude is significant. And so, would you help us financially? One of the things I love about traveling with the Our Daily Bread crew is that we all share a faith in the Lord Jesus and a realization that the work we're about is not our work, but his work. And there have been a number of times where something has happened in country with the crew and the trip. We ran into a problem, right? Could be as mundane as traffic, could be as critical as a political situation that shifted our capacity to do what we had planned to do every single time the Lord opened a new pathway. (laughs) Sometimes the Lord just moves these pieces around on the table in a way that I don't expect them to be moved. And I love the way the Lord provides. Um, If the Lord has blessed you in a way that you can, he may be saying, hey, come alongside us. I would uh, love to have you join us financially in supporting this work. Yeah, thanks, Jack. And so if you would like to partner with us, in helping fund the production of this fourth season of the Holy Land film series with Jack Beck. Right now you can go to our discovertheword.org website, click Donate, and you can give right there. All the money collected now through the end of June will go toward this project. Again, that's at discovertheword.org and click Donate. And now back to this study with Jack Beck here on Discover the Word, taking a walking tour of the Gospels and focusing on an event that happened along the Galilee-Samaria border. When people meet me professionally, they often come away with the impression that I'm sort of an extrovert who loves to go to parties. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing could be farther (laughs) from the truth. (laughs) I get that too, Jack. Sort of professionally extroverted. I tend generally to feel uncomfortable in social settings where there's lots and lots of people. But I'd like to tighten the focus. There are folks who are socially displaced in all eras. And I think the story that we're looking at today takes us into that category of the human experience, Mm. those who feel socially displaced. And where is it that they find a place within the Christian message? Where do they find their place with Jesus? The story is a powerful one for helping us answer that question, I think. I think all of us feel discomfort in some groups. Some of us feel uncomfortable in all groups. (laughs) So this ought to be helpful. And it's a difference between being introverted and extroverted, although that plays a large role. There are reasons for our discomfort, whether it's a disqualification of, you know, oh, I come from divorce or abuse or poverty or whatever, my broken story, Mm -hmm. or or, or sometimes it's a giftings, you know, and I'm not a platform person, I'm a behind the scenes person. We can bring on our own discomfort and we can feel that sense of not fitting in just about anywhere. 
Yeah. And oftentimes that not fitting in comes because other people have told us at some point we didn't. Yeah, fit then in. there's yeah. that. Right? The the hurtful uh-huh. memories that we all have. And add to that know. maybe not speaking the same language as those around mm. you or not having been raised in a faith as those around you have been or you know, we can go on and on here. So mm-hmm. Yeah, what it comes down to is we live in a world that's constantly dividing itself into us versus them. Oh, that's good. Now, whoever the them might be at this moment. Yeah. Well, whatever social displacement we're talking about, the question is live, you know, do the yeah. socially displaced have a place with Jesus? And this story really offers a powerful answer to that question. Let's take a look at just a couple of verses here that'll get us into it. It's a story of the 10 lepers. Luke 17, 17, and 18. Luke 17, and Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? Yeah. Well, let's start with the geography because, you know, that's what we do. We always start with the geography. I'm struck by the fact, sorry, how often stories that we think we know so well, we've just read past and ignored the geography. Yeah. So I'm lifting mm-hmm. it up here for us. Luke 17, verse 11. This is how that story begins. Bill read how it ends. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Hmm. Because we're not so familiar with geography, Bible geography, sometimes we may not have a picture there, but let's put the picture in place. For Jesus to travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem, he's going to have to at least travel along the border between Galilee and Samaria. And Luke calls it out for us, just in case we'd miss it. Mm-hmm. He's traveling on the border, and that makes this a border story. It's the sort of place people live who don't fit in on either side of the border. Yeah my observation. That's why I think it's a border story about people who are socially displaced. So let's walk through uh, these individuals a bit and get a sense for their displacement. Let's start with leprosy. Okay, We've got 10 people living on the border who are all afflicted by the same uh, disease. What do you know about leprosy? It was isolating socially and religiously and culturally Mm -hmm. in ancient Israel. It wasn't always in the rest of the ancient world, because Naaman the Syrian was a Mm -hmm. general in the Syrian army, and he had leprosy, but he was able to function at a high level and was welcomed into the palace. But in Israel, Mm -hmm. there were pretty strict rules about lepers and what they could and could not do. Mm -hmm. We have a modern-day leprosy. It's called Hansen's disease, and I don't know how that really differentiates from this, Jack. Yeah, I think it's hard to create a one-to-one relationship here. It seems like the word that we have in the Bible that's translated leprosy is used for a variety of uh, skin ailments yeah. of one kind or another, everything from uh, psoriasis to the, well, that sort of that sort of thing that's apparent to others. Uh, so I wouldn't immediately, like you said, Elisa, jump to Hansen's disease. But to Bill's point, whether you're living in a Jewish or a Samaritan culture, uh, this is an isolating reality. And I think what's striking about it is that we've got people living on the border because they probably don't fit well uh, on Mm -hmm. either side of that border because they've been afflicted with this illness. So we've got uh, nine of those folks who are Jewish, and then we've got one man who 
shares the disease, but not the cultural connection. He's a Samaritan. Yeah, so you've got two problems that this guy's dealing with, both of which make him unacceptable in Jewish social culture. The leprosy disease would require him to stay away from people. The fact that he was a Samaritan, I mean, we have a lot of information on that in John 4 Mm -hmm. and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, how we're told in that chapter that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Yeah, the story in 2 Kings 17 is going to be, for those who want to dig deeper into the historical roots of that, is where this all occurred. 800 years prior to our story, the empire of Assyria came in. They deported uh, the Jewish residents of that space, imported non-Jewish folks, eventually ended up having to commingle both Jewish and non-Jewish folks together, and resulted in a community that has some connections to the Jewish faith, but not always the ethnic genealogical connections uh, to the to the Jewish faith. And as you said, Bill, John 4 verse 9 says that there was tension that developed between yeah. the two. That's a story that comes to us from the time between the Old and New Testament periods yeah. when a Jewish king went in and destroyed the Samaritan temple, and mm-hmm. that has a legacy uh, that lives on into the first century time of Jesus. You know, and times that I've been in the Bible lands and talking to whether it's our Israeli guide or people at the restaurants yeah. or whatever, I'd often ask them about their faith. And what they would say to me, Jack, is, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. And, and so here you have a case where you have a Samaritan who is being excluded, not just ethnically, but also religiously, whereas today maybe that wouldn't happen. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, the way he comes to Jesus. You know, he prostrates himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him. There's a, a genuineness and a humility and a honoring of Jesus, all of that tied in his response. You know, it's already one good thing to come and tell somebody mm. thank you. Yeah. But to lay at someone's feet and to give them that much honor and it just it shows that when the group of lepers was praying, Jesus have mercy on us, that this Samaritan had taken that really seriously. That when he received that mercy, he came back and laid himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Yeah. There's something very um humbling, but also faith invested in that gesture. It's like he's really acknowledging his deity, I think, yeah. maybe we would say. Yeah, I think there's also something here with Luke, because this is now at least the second time that Luke has made a Samaritan the hero of a story, mm-hmm. and that would have been shocking to the Jewish audience. It is, and I think you're right, Bill, and I, I think what we're seeing here is Jesus wading into, as he so often does, wading into a group of people that socially were not viewed yeah. Uh, yeah. very well. The infirmed, you know, the, the lepers, the blind, the deaf, the demon-possessed, on and on, the woman with the issue of blood, the, the dead, everybody that was unclean and unacceptable. And Jesus just sweeps that away. I mean, he just mm-hmm. sweeps away those social distinctions. He treats mm-hmm. everybody out here on the border in the same way and sends them all, this is interesting to me, sends them to Jerusalem. Now, in 
in Jerusalem, the high priest was sort of the public health officer. So <laughs> they were the ones who were able to inspect uh, the individual who had had uh, leprosy and were able to declare them recovered from that skin disease, which would allow them, of course, to re-enter society in the fullest possible way, including coming to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus said, all of you go. It seems to me like the Samaritan had the least to benefit from. Yeah. He's not going to be interested in that public health officer's declaration. Nobody back in Samaria is necessarily going to see that as defining. So suddenly he's with a group of people with whom he shares this disease. They're healed from that disease. They're all moving towards Jerusalem. And I think the realization comes, I don't really fit with you anymore. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. You're going Mm -hmm. to a place that you now fit, but I still don't fit there, even though all of us are healed. Yeah. And what does he do? He comes to Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet, yeah. He pivots. He wow. pivots and goes right back to the only place he seemed to fit, mm. yeah. right on the border between Samaria and Galilee. I mean, it doesn't seem to have been very much elapsed time. Jesus heals them. He sends them away. And almost immediately, we have a sense that he's right back, maybe taking a few steps before realizing, I don't have anything in common with these mm-hmm. other folks anymore who have been healed. They're going to go back to their Jewish families, their Jewish worship. They're going to go back to Jerusalem. But what about me? Yeah. Well, all sorts of questions hang around, yeah. especially the fact that I had had this disease and maybe the fact that I was hanging around with a bunch of Jewish people. Yeah. And that becomes socially unacceptable reality for me if I'm going to go back home to Samaria. So he returns to the one person mm-hmm. uh, who has extended acceptance to him. And I love the power of of that picture because uh, it teaches in this very visual and very tangible way that the socially displaced have a place with Jesus. And I, I would just say to anyone who's feeling like they need to stay on the border, who they don't really fit in in any of these places for all of the reasons that we sometimes make people feel unacceptable, uh, that Jesus isn't that guy. <laughs> he, he is not someone who finds us yeah. unacceptable no matter what we bring to him. For, for anyone who maybe feels like they're on the border, they don't fit in, uh, maybe people, please realize Jesus is waiting for you. Uh, He's waiting for you because he loves to embrace people whom others have seen as socially unacceptable. One of the things that Jesus speaks about somewhat frequently and demonstrates often is prayer. He talks about how to pray. Yeah, we have the Lord's Prayer. Uh, He talks about where to pray. And he frequently talks about persistence in prayer. And truth be told, that third part is a tough one for (laughs) me. No kidding. You're the only one, Jack. (laughs) I like to push a button and see an outcome. Mm -hmm. And man, so often prayer is not like that. You know, what do I do? when I pray and don't seem to be seeing an answer or an outcome. Jesus is talking about persistence in prayer. In the story from Luke that we're looking at, again, it's a story that's going to be a travel story as Jesus has left Galilee, making his last trip down to Jerusalem, heading down uh, the Jordan River Valley. And he tells another parable, a parable about 
a widow who is having a legal dispute for which she's not receiving satisfaction. Uh, the punchline for this that we're coming to is Luke eighteen seven. Let's put that out in front of us. Mm-hmm. I can read that. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? Yeah. Well, Jesus tells a parable in order to help us understand how to pray when we don't seem to be getting the answer or an answer. And it involves two individuals who don't have names, but about whom we can create expectations because we know the position they hold in society. So let's spend a few moments Mm -hmm. uh, introducing each of them through that cultural lens. Uh, First of all, we have a judge, yeah? yeah, in the story. And when I think about a judge, I tend to think about someone different than the Bible has in mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I Somebody behind a big desk, mm-hmm. wearing black, with a gavel, getting ready to make a legal judgment and then slamming the gavel down. And yeah. that's why it makes good TV. Yeah, And maybe <laughs> um, in our society, typically deserves the title, Your Honor. Yeah, It's someone reputable, someone wise, someone of good reputation, someone that yeah. can be trusted to weigh matters and, and make a just decision. But this judge here yeah. doesn't seem to be like that at all. It, in fact, Jesus characterizes him rather harshly, I think. <laughs> he says, he does not fear God and did not respect men. Yeah, yeah. and, and my translation says, doesn't care what people thought. And I thought, yeah. wow, I mean, it, you just feel kind of like it's a flippant narcissistic almost uh, individual. Mm -hmm. Let me circle right back to that. Let me just stick for a moment with trying to navigate through some of the jurisprudence (laughs) of uh, first century Israel, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say I have an issue with someone else. What do I do first? Uh, I first go to the head of my extended family. The people tend to live in very large Mm -hmm. family groups. Some of these family groups, I'm talking about well over 100 people. And there was a senior male member of that social group who would be the one who would function as a dispute settler. Well, okay. So I take my dispute to the head of our household and I don't get satisfaction. What do I do? Well, then I can go to the town or village elder um, who may be associated with this duty of offering arbitration or judgment. Deuteronomy 25 verse 1 explains to us how they're to operate. When the people have a dispute, they're to take it to the court and judges. So again, kind of translate that back into the first century context. And these judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it only worked that well all the time. (laughs) Yeah. If it only worked that well all the time. But as you observe, Bill uh, and Elisa, this guy was far from that ideal, right? I mean, put that out there again. I I think that language, when we see what you're supposed to see, Deuteronomy 25.1, what does Jesus tell us we're seeing? Mm. He did not fear God, and he didn't care what anybody thought or said. Yeah. 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 He's not going to do it because he thinks God wants him to do it a certain way, and he's not going to do it because he feels pressure from people to do it a certain way. Yeah. He doesn't really have a conscience the way we would hope someone in his position would. Absent the moral compass, my goodness. Mm not the sort of guy that you would have to go to. But we meet someone in this parable who had to go to him uh, yeah. because mm-hmm. she was not receiving any sort of satisfaction at the family level. We're told one other thing about her, that she is a 
widow. widow. So let's yeah. put her culturally in the frame. What do you know there? Well, you've got somebody who's a victim um, and in a victim's position before a judge who's irreverent. And it, wow, I mean, that's a very difficult position because widows were dependent upon their extended family. If they had one, if they didn't, they were just dependent. Mm-hmm for financial and otherwise support. Uh, in the last conversation, Jack, you talked about people who were socially displaced. And in a way, widows fit that because they were among the most vulnerable in society. They were those who did not have a good, solid support system outside their family if they had a family. Mm. And so they were very much prey for mm-hmm. powerful people to take advantage of. Yeah. yeah, and throughout the story of the Bible, the Lord brings attention to the orphans and the widows as the most vulnerable and those who were called to take care of. And honestly, w- widows and orphans in the world today and most places in the world are in a very similar mm-hmm. version of vulnerability to the first okay. century, yeah, especially right. with things like land grabbing that still exist where a widow was, you know, married to this person, they owned land together, or they were part of the family of the husband. And then when that husband dies, she looks to the rest of his extended family to take care of her. And they're like, well, he's dead now, so you're dead to us. But then her family also, who's poor and trying to live off of the land, she goes back to them and they're like, sorry, Mm -hmm you know, we sold you off basically. And so you can't come back to our family. And so she Mm. ends up stuck Mm. between Mm -hmm. families and vulnerable as well, even today. So in this parable, we meet two people who are in a very different place in the power hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine this going well for this poor widow, but I love her in the Mm -hmm. story because she reminds me so much of my wife who is tiny and kind, but man, Get in her way, and she will run you over. (laughs) So this woman in this parable has some sort of legal dispute, and the judge just tries to do what apparently has worked well for him before, and that's delay, ignore, and use every other technique of obfuscation that he can to delay delivering a decision or justice for this woman. But what I love about her is her aggressiveness. She is so aggressive that she won't give up. In fact, she becomes so insistent and persistent that apparently this judge begins to feel that she might take this to the next level and bring him some sort of physical harm. And so he grants her the hearing and justice because of that aggressive persistence that she shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Verse 5 says, yet because this widow bothers me. Mm -hmm. She's almost like an annoyance, an irritant to him because she just won't let go of this thing. And what could she have done? And really, what was her recourse to eventually attack him? What would that have looked like? Yeah, I don't know that there's a lot of good, strong reality for that. I think it is. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just simply that this guy is everything that's worked before. Okay. Okay. <laughs> everything that's worked before for me to not deal with this isn't working here. Yeah. And so. How do I get out of this situation? Well, I'm going to do what's so uncharacteristic for me, and I'm actually going to give her a hearing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the Old Testament in Israel, Elisa, the king would have been the final court of appeals. Okay. But now they don't have that national 
king and structure that they had in the Old Testament times. I mean, in Solomon's day, you see the two prostitutes with the baby come to the king, and you think, wow, that's shocking. Mm. But that was the system. The king was the last court of appeal. Okay. Yeah, and there's a note that I see in here, too. It, not only does it say that she may not wear me out by continually mm. coming, but then there's a note in my Bible that says, or so that she may not finally come and slap me in the face. Mm. <laughs> Which in that time, that makes it in an honor-shame okay. thing that we've talked about before, yeah. right? So she would bring dishonor on him because he didn't do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. So the question is, why does Jesus tell this parable? Why does he narrate this story? And it all starts at Luke 18, 1, so that we should teach us to pray and not give up. And there are two things that come out of the back of this parable for me that are helpful to me. Maybe they'll be helpful to you and others as well. First, it's a reminder that God is my only option. As you were just observing, Bill, uh, she was at the end of her legal uh, chain of appeal. She was taking this to the highest court that she could take it to. And, and it wasn't, well, I'm not getting satisfaction here, so I'll pivot and go somewhere else. In my prayer life, the Lord is that last stop. <laughs> so yeah. If I don't feel like I'm getting a hearing there, I don't have another option. God remains my only option as the one that I pray to. And secondly, uh, the thing that strikes me is that the only answer I have to apparent unanswered prayer is more prayer, mm. yeah. which mm. is really hard for me. Mm. But that's yeah. what Jesus is teaching, right? We should mm. always pray and not give up. Uh, so at that, at just that moment that I feel... I want to find another way to do this, someone else to talk to, or I just want to give up. Well, the sole answer to unanswered prayer is even more prayer. Which may remain unanswered for a while. And one more thing, too, I think that really jumps out to me is there almost, do you remember where Jesus talks about your father in heaven and how even you on earth know how to give some good gifts to your kids, but how much more is your father in heaven wanting to give you good gifts? We see here a judge who, he doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about others. And then I feel like the really, like the emphasis in this is in verse seven, where it says, and will not God grant justice? So here you have a judge that finally grants justice for all the wrong reasons. And yet we have a God who is kind and compassionate and loving and wants what's best for us. And he's the one that we're crying out to. And so it almost feels like part of the emphasis for all of the wrong things about this judge are what help emphasize all the best things about our God. Yeah, important lessons about prayer from this story Jesus told while on that final trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. Thanks, Jack. A Bible geographer, Dr. Jack Beck, our guest on this edition of the Discover the Word podcast, continuing what we're calling a walking tour of the Gospels, and specifically focusing on Jesus' journey in Luke from Galilee to Jerusalem and some important events and teaching opportunities along the way. Well, one more stop on this tour for one more of these stories, these parables that Jesus told on the trip. And again, the location is going to be important. This is a story that takes place in the temple in Jerusalem. Discover why the fact that it's there, you know, before God and not in front of other people, why that's significant in just a moment. Now, much of the insight and perspective that Jack is sharing with us this week is also in a new book that's been published by Our Daily Bread Publishing called A Walking Tour of the Gospels. 
And we're just accessing a section of the Gospel of Luke for these conversations. But in the book, Jack covers 150 key events with photos and maps and charts to help you explore how the biblical landscape enriched Jesus' teachings. A walking tour of the Gospels by Jack Beck. You'll find it if you go to our discovertheword.org website and click on the store. Or you can just search any of the online booksellers for a walking tour of the Gospels. And now the conclusion of our conversations this week about a walking tour of the Gospels. Well, Jack, once again, it's been a delight having you with us. We're so mm-hmm. glad that you would help us to learn the scriptures in new and fresh ways. And it's always just wonderful to have you. So thanks for being with us again. And thanks for the opportunity. And, you know, I want to ask a clarifying question for anyone who's used to your solely geographic uh, focus and teaching. That This particular series of conversations we're having is it's a little bit different um, with the walking tour of the Gospels. And you're bringing up agricultural things, cultural mm-hmm. realities. And so maybe just review why, why you on this topic. Yeah, good question. For me, geography is a broad reach uh, that extends all the way from the physical geography, the forces and features on the surface of the earth, to the animals and the plants, uh, the insects with whom we share existence on the earth, to the human response to all of that, which is culture. And so human geography for me comes very close to what the anthropological category of culture is about. And we've been talking about a lot of those things. Geography is a shaper of culture, so it is a matter of interest to me. Of course, the greatest interest to me is finding insight into language. Language can be a slippery thing, and context helps us make sure that we hold on to it a little bit more firmly in our fingertips, and anything that I can do to understand what motivates people to speak as they do or shapes how people speak uh, from the physical side of things, I'm all in and all ears for it. And I love Thank being with you. you guys. Thanks so much. <laughs> so for our final conversation this time, where are we going to go? Uh, we are still on our way to Jerusalem, but kind of leaping forward uh, with a picture of worship in Jerusalem, place of prayer. Mm. And we are going to meet the kind of person, let's see, how can I say this nicely, who is more exhausting to me than any other that I can think of. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'd hate to hear you say it in a not nice way because that's, that's pretty strong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I don't know about you. I know you've met this person before. They're a person who is very self-absorbed and feel like hmm. everything that they are and do is better than everything everyone else has. Their children are more talented than yours. Their work is more meaningful. Even their dog is smarter than yours. You know the (laughs) sort of person I'm talking about? Yeah, I think we call that the humble brag these days, where (laughs) everything that comes out of their mouth, it's like they find humble ways, quote unquote, to drop in, oh, I met so-and-so, and I did such and such, and I flew to this country, and I've made all this money, and all that. And And then maybe if they're Christian, they'll throw in, you know, praise be to God. Exactly. There's a little cherry on top. <laughs> and sometimes all that stuff gets assembled together in the annual Christmas letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, Jesus is going to talk about that person here and a caution that God's view of the self-righteous is not the view that they have of themselves. Uh, it's a pretty 
powerful cautionary statement. Uh, Luke 18, 14. Let's put that in front of us as our lead. I've got it. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Yeah. Eek. Yeah, and that's how I think we're supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all yeah. of us are going to have to deal with folks who have this, and I'm not talking about self-confidence. I'm talking about an overt overconfidence in themselves mm-hmm. to the point of that self-righteousness. How does God think about them? And Jesus tells this parable to help us calibrate their place in the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And all these parables, I think, we have a tendency to try to make them all about one idea or one point or identifying with one character. But these stories invite us in to change how we see not just others, but see ourselves and see how God works and stuff like that. And I feel like the invitation to this parable is whenever we see the Pharisee who exalts himself as the other person that we're never like, Mm we're actually being the Pharisee. Mm. And so part of the invitation is the, in this story is to see us as the times when we're the Pharisee or the tax collector, either yeah. character. Yeah, I think you're right, Daniel. I think one of the challenges when we read stories in the Bible is to ask ourselves where we might fit in that story. And when you have the self-righteous Pharisee versus the humble tax collector, you say, well, which one are you? I would have to say it depends on what day it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I kind of yeah. live in transition. One time I remember exiting an aircraft, and the man in front of me had a book faced out, and the title said, Be Like Jesus. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And he bolted in front of everybody yeah. to the end of the gate where the bags had been placed and grabbed his and shouldered everybody out of the way, still with his book cover out, Be Like Jesus. And I was like going, whoa, bro, you know, <laughs> that's, are you? Are you? And, you know, as I'm walking down the concourse, that arrow turns back towards me. Well, aren't I judging you, mm. you know, right in this minute? And yeah, Bill, I appreciate that. It depends on the day because I can slip into that self-righteousness really easily. Yeah. Well, Luke is, is putting us uh, in company of Jesus again. We are not in Jerusalem mm-hmm. yet, but on the way. And uh, the place that uh, people are most likely to think of when they think of Jerusalem is the temple, uh, the place mm-hmm. where God made his presence known in special ways throughout the ages. No surprise that it's a place that people would come and pray to the Lord. Prayer was very much a part of why I might choose to go to Jerusalem and go to the temple to feel that sense of a proximate near God rather than one who is transcendent and far, far away. So the picture is not an unexpected one, uh, that we meet some people praying. We meet two people who could not be more different from one another. They fit in two very different social categories. So let's unpack them before mm-hmm. we look at their actions and behaviors. Uh, starting with the Pharisee, what do you know about these folks? Well, they thought it was all about living in obedience to the law mm-hmm. by their own strength, in a sense. And so the better you were at keeping the law, the better person you were, the better person you were, obviously, the more God would like you and uh, the more status you would have in the community and all those things. So it was very much a works orientation, we would kind of refer to it today, I think. Yeah. And the Pharisee here is, you know, just congratulating himself in, in verses yeah. 11 to 12 about not being like 
tax collectors, evildoers, etc. In verse 12, he fasts twice a week. He gives a tenth of all he gets. It's very jot and tittle. You know, I'm, I've yeah. got this spreadsheet of how I'm going to obey and everything's checked off yeah. neat and tidy. And that's really the definition of self-righteous, isn't it? Because righteousness, we've talked about before on Discover the Word, is right relationship with God. And so how do you have a right relationship with God? Well, it's up to me to do all the right things to keep God happy and for him to be pleased. And so that like self-righteous, self-regulating relationship with God, it's all up to me to make it happen. And I can almost kind of identify with some of the language that Mm. he prays. I don't want to beat up on him too much because I'm like... I thank you that I'm not like a thief or a rogue or an adulterer. And then we really get a sense for what he means when he says, or like this guy next to me, right? Which is kind of where it really feels like it goes too far. But you almost can kind of get this sense of like, I'm thankful for the way the Lord has, has, you know, drawn me out of all those things that I could have been or whatever. Yeah, It's striking to me that the Pharisee's stated impression of himself Mm-hmm. is likely been reinforced repeatedly by others around him. Um, yeah. So Pharisees were really, and we tend to look down on them because of Jesus' critique uh, of them in the Gospels, but in first century Jewish society, these folks were really held up as folks who were getting it right rather than folks who were getting it wrong. Uh, they were forming societies where they studied the Torah and they looked for ways to extend Torah legislation into day-to-day living. They were policing one another's behavior, uh, saying, hey, are you are you living up to the high standards that we're setting here for our society? So they tended to be folks that Pharisees tended to be people that, that others would look up to and say, that's what we would like our kids to grow up to be. Now, put that picture uh, against the foil, which is the tax collector. Um, Unpack him for me. Yeah, they're kind of at the opposite ends of the social spectrum, aren't they? The tax collector would have been seen as a collaborator with the Roman occupiers, and not only collaborating with the Romans, but also using his position as a collaborator with the Romans to get rich at the expense of his neighbors. Yeah. I'm struck by their positions, Jack. You know, two men went to the temple, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. The tax collector stood at a distance. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? Almost at every step. So we have this commonality. We're in the same place. We're doing the same thing. Right? But not really. But not really. And yeah. everything else in the story kind of pulls them apart like this. So, Lisa, I love what you just observed. Their posture is different. One is standing by himself because he's too good to be with others. I mean, that's his perspective. The other is standing at a distance because he doesn't feel like he belongs yeah. with others. Even how they're looking, right? Mm -hmm. The tax collector looking down. Can't even look up to heaven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, The Pharisee confidently, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course, God, I'm here, right? Yeah. Uh, The Pharisee, you know, Daniel made those observations before about his list of accomplishments. Uh, The Pharisee saw himself really as the star of the show, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Aren't you fortunate, Lord, that I'm here? You know, showing others how to live. And I'm not, certainly not like this tax collector. So these two men saw themselves very, very differently. I think that brings us to the question, how did God see them? Uh, How did God see them? And the answer 
falls uh, like a lightning bolt, I think, mm-hmm. out, of, out yeah. of heaven, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sure does. The one who uh, humbled himself went home justified, but the other one did not. And it just, again, so countercultural to what Jesus' audience would have expected. Mm-hmm. Um, because like you said, the general public did tend to regard the Pharisees for their religious fervor and all those things. So the thing I find really fascinating, Jack, is you said in our first conversation that in this journey to Jerusalem that Jesus is making, that Luke gathers these stories together to help tell that story. And when you tie this story together with the one that opens chapter 19 about Zacchaeus, a tax collector. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like a yeah. preview of coming attractions it's good. Uh, mm-hmm. of what's going to happen in just a few days' time when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, likewise humbles himself and, and comes to Jesus. I love that. I love that. I think that's spot on. I don't want to lose the power of that concluding statement. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. This isn't a social misstep on the part of the Pharisee. This was a potentially spiritually fatal perspective. He had so self-absorbed that there was no longer a need for the God who could justify him. He took care of that. I'll justify myself. And he left thinking he was when he wasn't. Yeah. That's good. Man, that is a powerful cautionary tale. As you so well observed before, this story comes back right at me and says, mm-hmm. um, how do you think about yourself? I don't believe that Christianity should be a faith movement of the underconfident. I think that we have lots of texts that say you should feel great about being who you are. Mm-hmm. You are creation of the Almighty. You are the redeemed of the Almighty. Be uh, confident about who you are, but don't carry that the next step and lose sight of why that is that you can't have that confidence. Lose sight of that and you become someone who goes home unjustified. Great to have Jack Beck with us again here on Discover the Word. His perspective as a Bible geographer is always so helpful, isn't it? I mean, hanging around with Jack as we have for the last couple of episodes really does change the way we read our Bibles in so many ways. So thanks, Jack. This time for taking us on a walking tour of the Gospels and focusing on that crucial journey Luke highlights from Galilee to Jerusalem. And don't forget about that special project that you have the opportunity to be part of that raises some of the funding for a final season of Jack's Holy Land video series with Our Daily Bread Ministries. The video production and planning involves a big crew. Travel and expenses have gone up tremendously recently. And so our connection with Jack through Discover the Word makes us want to help, doesn't it? So if you want to join this effort, go to discovertheword.org, click Donate, and you can give right there. I hope you will consider partnering with us in this way. Well, in our next episode, Daniel will be leading a series with Elisa and Bill and Rasul Berry going through the New Testament book of 1 John. Reflect with us on the words of an older man who had spent significant time with Jesus that reveal how the experiences he had with our Lord shaped him to see God and the world and others and himself differently. Study 1 John with us on the next episode of the Discover the Word podcast. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.